Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night. We give you thanks for this Ash Wednesday as we mark the beginning of the season of Lent. Lord, we pray that during this season you would use this time of self-examination and reflection to help us embrace more and more the wonder of your grace and mercy. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the wisdom from your word that it contains. We pray that you would bless our time tonight and that you would use this time for your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm delighted to see uh, you uh, virtually tonight and glad to have you with us. I know we're missing a number of people who told me they were going to Ash Wednesday services uh, at their churches. And so that, of course, is definitely a higher duty than coming to class. Uh, so I am delighted that they are doing that. Uh, but we are going to uh, move right along and start, as usual, with our verse from Second Peter that I would invite you uh, to say along with me. If you're looking for Lenten discipline and you want a scripture verse to memorize, uh, this might be a great one to think about. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And as we think about this season of Lent, it's a great reminder that indeed the world is full of corruption and that sinful desire has filled the world with corruption and that has invaded not only the world and the culture but each one of us and so it is a good reminder during the season of lent to be grateful for the grace and mercy of god so i first wanted to say a word of welcome to everyone who's new um each week we get new people not necessarily on the zoom although sometimes we get new folks on zoom but uh, very frequently on uh, the YouTube channel or on the podcast. So I just would like to say a word of welcome to all of those folks. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, and to say that uh, as the veterans of this class know, there are three ways that you can approach this class. You can be what we call on the beach, which means that you are just sort of along for the ride. Uh, you pay attention when you want to, you fall asleep when you want to, you read a John Grisham book when you want to instead of listening to me. But we're just glad you're here on whatever terms you wanna be there. Those of you who wanna approach the class by snorkeling, that means that you are willing to dive down and look at some things when they catch your interest. And so, uh, there may be certain topics that you want to go deeper on and follow some of the recommended resources. Delighted to have you. And then there are the others who are scuba divers, the ones who are wanting to go uh, all the way into the deep water and look at the wonders that are down there. Uh, those of you that are scuba diving might have, when you got the email, uh, listen to all of Charles Wood's marvelous passion according to saint mark and read along with the lyrics and all of that that is certainly not required uh to be following this class uh, but if you are interested in these things i invite you to scuba dive along with me and if you are new and you're not on the email list yet i would ask you to google saint philip's church charleston uh, and you will find uh, our website and you can send me an email and let me know that you would like to be on the email list. That will get you links to the things that we talk about during class and a summary email each week in case you uh, went to the kitchen and made dinner in the middle of class and missed something. Um, the summary email can be a great help. And then just a reminder about how to read this book. Many people have the same experience that I did when I first read this book, which I did not like it at all the first time I read it. And the reason for that is that I tried to sit down and read the whole thing in one afternoon. And as I've said before, it made me feel like my head was going to explode. Uh, there was just too much. And I thought, why did he put so much stuff in here? 
but what I realized, because I later learned that the book had been given as a series of radio talks, is that you need to take about a week to chew on each chapter. And reading it aloud is a great way of making yourself do that. Also, highly recommend the C.S. Lewis Doodle. Uh, that is a great website that can help you uh, understand what Lewis is doing in this book. So tonight we have, uh, as usual, some music. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you find it hard to hear the music on the Zoom call, um, you can always, the next day, go and listen to it on the podcast or the church website um, because there's a better recording of it there. So I'm going to play a little something and see if anyone knows what it is that we're listening to. you know feel free to send me a chat it's a little tricky yes elizabeth scott you got it good job uh this is Mendelssohn's, if with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall surely find me. And it is from that great uh, oratorio, Elijah, uh, which is a great work if you don't know it. Uh, what was a little bit tricky about that is that is usually a tenor solo. And of course, this was a setting for treble choir. And part of the reason I was playing it is that it's a wonderful text. The text is from Deuteronomy for the beginning of Lent. If with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall surely find me, says the Lord. And that is a great uh, thing to think about as we enter into this season. The other reason is that through the miracles of technology, that is what was actually sung in the Ash Wednesday service today at Maudlin College Chapel in Oxford, um, the chapel where Lewis worshiped every day for decades, uh, that some of us that are on this call have worshiped there together. So uh, it is uh, beautiful. I will send the link out to you and would commend that to you. So just to quickly run through some context uh, to keep us mindful, because the context is so important in this book. Uh, the book is written in England in the darkest days of World War II. The BBC has commissioned these talks uh, that Lewis is giving. Jimmy Welch has gone way out on a limb by having a layperson give religious talks, which was not done uh, during that era. And Lewis is coming each week into London, a London that is on fire from the bombing by the Luftwaffe, of which the BBC is one of the major targets. He's climbing over sandbags, risking his life to give these talks each week. And he starts this book off with an unusual section uh, because he doesn't start off talking about Jesus, which is what you would think you would do uh, in a book that was later called Mere Christianity. But he didn't want to start there because he said in the culture of England in the 1940s, People thought they were pretty good folks, and they didn't think they necessarily needed a savior, which uh, might sound familiar to our culture today. And so he starts a couple of steps back from that with that universal and ancient question, who are we and how did we and the cosmos come to be? And he reasons from that to the idea of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. 
And we're going to do a quick review because this book is a logical argument where each chapter is a building block. So I'm going to run through this quickly. Uh, the law of human nature, we as humans know what we ought to do. We know what the right thing to do is in most situations, um, but we frequently choose to break that law. Unlike stones, stones uh, subject to the law of gravity fall. They have no choice. They can't disobey that law. But humans can disobey the law of human nature. And in that first book, that is the main point that he makes. And he says um, that it is only you, after you've realized that there's a moral law that's real and a power behind it, and that you've broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power, it's only after this that Christianity begins to talk. And Lewis is trying to do exactly what we see in this little quotation from Jimmy Welch, that the church, in times of uncertainty and questioning, has to declare the truth about God and his relationship to man. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied in present-day society during these difficult times. So true today as well. We talked about how Christians need to relearn gospel humility and self-forgetfulness and put away pride and judgment. We talked about the power of story and beauty and transcendence to help us all become translators of the spiritual truth of the gospel so that people that don't speak the language of the church can hear the good news. The second book, uh, which we're in right now, is called What Christians Believe. And Lewis starts that off with something he called the rival conceptions of God. And he's writing this right in the worst part of World War II where England's standing alone, the US has not entered the war yet, uh, German troops are massing on the other side of the channel. It's a terrifying time. And so he really cuts to the chase and talks about what the Christian faith truly is. And he starts by saying, you have to understand as a Christian that you don't have to believe that every single thing about every other religion is totally wrong. He believes that God has scattered images all through cultures and history that will help point people who are seeking after truth to the truth of the gospel. He also says that one of the biggest threats to the Christian view of God is pantheism. And most of us tend to think of pantheism as like sort of a 60s or 70s thing with hippies and uh, Eastern meditation and maybe some incense, uh, but that is not uh, actually true. We are surrounded by pantheism all in the media today because pantheism basically is the idea is there's no such thing as right and wrong. Everything is a matter of perspective and choices and preferences. There are no absolutes. And that is uh, where we find ourselves in our culture. And one of the things that turned Lewis away from his atheism was this point here. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got the idea of just and unjust? If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. And that point helped get Lewis on the road that led to his conversion to Christianity. He talks a lot about myths and types and shadows, how there are pointers all over, not just the Christian scriptures and history, but all of creation and literature pointing to who Jesus is. In the second chapter, The Invasion, he talks about what God did. And he says, one of the things that we have to realize is real things are not simple. Reality is usually something you couldn't have guessed, a point he's going to come back to in tonight's chapter. And he says that's one of the reasons he believes in Christianity. It's not a religion you would have made up. There are too many things that are just bizarre about it um, that no one would have put together in that particular way. He also says that when you're looking at dualism, the idea that there's good power and a dark power, just battling it out all the time, that the problem with that worldview is that existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good things. 
And so therefore evil is a parasite. It's not an original thing. It's not something that is created from the beginning. Evil only can define itself in relationship to the good. And Lewis is very upfront that the New Testament talks a lot about a dark power, um, just like Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings talks about a dark power, and Lewis talks about the dark power of uh, Queen Jadis and the Narnia Chronicles. And the idea is that this dark power is behind death and disease and sin. But what Lewis says is different about Christianity is that we believe that the dark power was originally created by God as something good. And because of using his free will, he went wrong. And Lewis concludes that chapter with this. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. And so we've talked about how being in church is so important because worshiping God reorients what we're looking at. And we live in a culture that wants to look at ourselves. And it's funny because we have the the great emblem of that now, the selfie that previous generations didn't have. We're so obsessed with ourselves that we take pictures of ourselves and post them all over social media. And if you step back even a few steps from that, that's weird probably not very healthy. And one of the things that worship does is it reorients that perspective. It also enables us to be with other people who are having their vision and their sense of reality washed through the perspective of the word of God. So the third chapter, one of the most famous chapters in this book is called The Shocking Alternative. And Lewis says in that chapter that Christians believe that God has allowed this evil power for the present to be prince of this world. And he says that this seems like a strange thing. Why would God let that happen? And he uses the example of a parent trying to train a child. The parent can't do everything uh, without uh, making sure that the child learns how to do things on their own. So, So for example, a parent will tell a child to clean up his room. And the parents will maybe that the room is clean, but he knows that the child needs to learn. So he's willing to tolerate some dirty laundry and toys on the floor for the child to learn. As Lewis says, God created things which had free will. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what made evil possible. And why did God give them free will? Because free will though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes good possible. God took this risk and believed it was worth it. And we are following in that long line today of those who follow in the sin of Satan and of Adam and Eve of wanting to be like gods, wanting to be our own creator, disregarding everything and saying, we're in charge, you're not the boss of me, And we can do whatever we want and be whoever we want. And as Lewis says, this is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to run on, the food our spirits were designed to feed on. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That's a great passage to chew on right there. So he says in the wrong fuel that the problem is always every age thinks, oh, we can solve the world's problems if we get the right politicians and the right theories 
and educate people enough, but every time selfish and cruel people end up on top and it all slides back into misery. And Lewis says one of the things that we have that God's left us is the sense of right and wrong. He says we also have good dreams. There's myths and queer stories about the God who dies and comes to life again and has given new life to men. And then he talks about how God chose the Jewish people and spent centuries hammering into their heads what kind of God he was, God unlike any other God in the history of mankind. And then the crazy thing happens this man, someone walking on the dust of the earth and leaving footprints, shows up and claims to forgive sins. He claims to always have existed. He claims to, that he will be coming to judge the world at the end of time to judge the sinfulness of each person. And when you've grasped that, Jesus meant that he was the being outside the world who made it, you will see that this is the most shocking thing ever uttered by human lips. So Jesus talks over and over in the Gospels about the forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees, every time he says it, say he's blaspheming. No one but God alone can forgive sins. Well, that's exactly the point. Jesus is saying he's God. So that brings us to Lewis's lunat liar, lunatic, or Lord trilemma. He says, I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So Lewis uses the same thing in the Narnia stories, and we talked last week about some people have argued uh, that Lewis left out an L, that there ought to be a fourth L, legend, because they say the Gospels are legends that were written hundreds of years after Jesus, and um, that, from a scholarly standpoint, is just ridiculous. These are the same kind of people that say Jesus might not even have existed. Um, if you are confused about that, please do yourself a favor and get this excellent book by the genius polymath, Dr. Peter Williams, who is a brilliant scholar and devout Christian. Can we trust the Gospels? It's easy to read, uh, brilliant, and absolutely compelling. So the fourth chapter uh, that we did last week talks about the concept of the atonement. The atonement is one of those deep theological concepts in Christianity, and Lewis does an absolutely remarkable job in this chapter of taking this concept of theology and explaining it in a way that makes sense in a very short uh, period of time. So he basically says uh, the alternatives that we learned from that last chapter, liar, lunatic, or lord, and we see in the scriptures that Jesus says that his chief thing is coming to teach, to preach the word. But the interesting thing is the bulk of the New Testament is about Jesus' suffering and dying. And the point of his dying is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. And Lewis says, well, what good is it if we don't understand how that works? And Lewis says, well, we don't understand all of the biological processes about what causes food to taste good through our taste buds and nourish our bodies and strengthen our muscles and bones. But we enjoy a good dinner anyway, even though we can't write the chemical equations about what it's doing inside our stomach. And so he says, we can accept what Christ has done without knowing perfectly how it works. And he says there's several things, though, that we do need to think about. The first is that only a bad person needs to repent, 
and only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you're able to do it. So that is the problem for us because we are sinners. If you went to an Ash Wednesday service, you were forcefully reminded about that uh, through the liturgy tonight. And we need God's help because we can't do this on our own. We need God's help in order to do something, though, which God in his own nature never does at all, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to that at all. So the problem is this is a road God has never walked. He has never done these things, and it's not part of who he is. But supposing God became a man, Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. That person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was a man, and he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can do it only if he becomes a man. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And this is the sense in which he pays our sins and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. And then Lewis goes on to talk about a serious misunderstanding. He says, some people say if Jesus was God as well as man, then his suffering and death lose all validity because it must have been so easy for him. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier for Jesus because he was God, but were possible only because he was God. But surely that is a very odd reason for not accepting them. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? And Lewis says, of course, that the right response to Jesus' suffering and death is to bow our heads in wonder and awe that the creator of the worlds, the creator of each person from the beginning of time would stoop to enter his creation and then to be executed by those that he had made on the arms of a cross made out of wood from a tree that he had created. It is the most amazing thing in the history of the world. So that brings us to tonight's chapter, chapter five, which Lewis calls the practical conclusion. And before we get into that, I want to just point out that Lewis sums up the entire Christian faith, what Christians believe, in these five short chapters. This is the last chapter in book two, What Christians Believe. Uh, so he has been very succinct, and here he has really leaned into that concept that we talked about early on in the introduction of mere Christianity boiling Christianity down to its true essentials. And in the next book, book three, he's going to talk about Christian behavior, which uh, that is where uh, we can say as a preacher, you go from preaching to meddling, Christian behavior. So that'll be an appropriate thing to be looking at during the season of Lent. So chapter five, Lewis starts off talking about Christ's perfect work. And this is something that is worth thinking about because the word perfect gets thrown around a lot, uh, but it's not a word that we really think about what does it mean. It means without flaw. It means there is nothing that could be better about it, nothing that could be improved, nothing that could be any different because it has achieved the highest possible level. And Christ's work on the cross was perfect. Uh, those of you that are used to our Anglican Eucharistic liturgy know that we say this in the liturgy every week, that Christ offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So Lewis says the perfect surrender and humiliation were undergone by Christ, perfect because he was God, surrender and humiliation because he was man. Now, the Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in his conquest for death and a new life after we have died and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. 
This means something much more than are trying to follow his teaching. One of the things Lewis is trying to get at is that Jesus' teaching is unbelievably important. But being a Christian doesn't mean just following his teaching. It means a kind of transformation and new life that are possible only because of Jesus' incarnation that led him to be fully God and fully man, and then his walking that path that led to his sacrifice on the cross. So Lewis then goes to talk about this new life. He says, people often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man, will happen. Remember, uh, social Darwinism was big in England in the 1940s, and this whole idea of evolution was on everyone's mind. But Lewis puts it this way and turns it on its head. But on the Christian view, this has happened already. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared. A new kind of life, which began in him, is to be put into us. How is this to be done? And this is so important to get your head around, that Christianity is not just a belief system, uh, although it is that. It's not just beautiful teaching that comes from the mouth of God, although it is that. It is first and foremost a relationship with and through Jesus Christ that because of his sacrifice on the cross enables us to be transformed and to have a new life, a new kind of life planted within us. Remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That eternal life begins when we come into that relationship with Christ where that new life begins in us. So Lewis then goes through um, some examples. And here he's talking again about how reality is not something that you could ever have made up. And this is going to get a little racy, so hold on. Uh, so he starts off with procreation. He says, now please remember how we acquired the old ordinary kind of life. We derived it from others, from our father and mother and all our ancestors, without our consent and by a very curious process involving pleasure, pain, and danger. A process you would never have guessed. Most of us spent a good many years in childhood trying to guess it. The stork, anyone? And some children, when they are first told do not believe it. When they are told the facts of life, they don't believe it. And I have heard from a number of my friends when they shared with their children about this for the first time, their kids were like, what? And they did not believe it. And Lewis says, and I'm not sure I blame them because it is very odd. And this is Lewis again saying, this is not something that you would have made up. This is that sort of reality that's so odd that it has the ring and the scent of truth about it. So Lewis says, with respect to the Christ life, that the God who arranged that human process of procreation is the very same God who arranges how the new life, the Christ life, is to be spread. We must be prepared for it being odd too. He did not consult us when he invented sex. He has not consulted us either when he invented this. There are three things that spread the Christ life to us. Baptism, belief, and that mysterious action which different Christians call different names. Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. At least those are the three ordinary methods. I'm not saying there may not be special cases where it is spread without one or more of these. I don't have time to go into special cases, and I don't know enough. If you're trying in a few minutes to tell a man how to get to Edinburgh, you'll tell him the trains. He can, it is true, get there by boat or by a plane, but you will hardly bring that in. And I'm not saying anything about which of these three things is the most essential. My Methodist friend would like me to say more about belief and less in proportion about the other two, but I'm not going into that. 
Anyone who professes to teach you Christian doctrine will, in fact, tell you to use all three, and that is enough for our present purpose. So remember, Lewis is talking here about baptism. He's talking about belief that means trusting in Jesus Christ, not just intellectual assent, but that kind of belief that says uh, when you're standing on the runway and there's a new Boeing airplane across from you and someone says, do you believe that plane will fly? Uh, and you say, yes, that's not the kind of belief it's talking about. It's talking about the kind of belief that says, do you believe that plane will fly? Well, then climb up those steps and get on and strap yourself into the seat and let the pilot take off with you in the plane. That's the kind of belief Lewis is talking about. And then Holy Communion. Lewis says, I cannot myself see why these things should be the conductors of the new kind of life. But then if one should not happen to know, I should never have seen any connection between a particular physical pleasure and the appearance of a new human being in the world. We have to take reality as it comes to us. There's no good jabbering about what it ought to be like or what we should have expected it to be like. And then he goes on to say about what Jesus taught. But though I cannot see why it should be so, I can tell you why I believe it is so. I have explained why I have to believe that Jesus was and is God. And it seems plain as a matter of history that he taught his followers that the new life was communicated in this way. In other words, I believe his authority. And let me just pause here to say that if you look at what Jesus said about new life, he said, follow me. He says, believe in me. He tells his disciples, do this in remembrance of me with the Lord's Supper. He commands people to go and tell the world the good news, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see this pattern repeated in the book of Acts by the early Christians, that they preach that you must come to belief in Jesus Christ, and that when you come to belief in Jesus Christ, you must be baptized. And then when you become part of the body of believers, one of the things that you become devoted to is the breaking of bread, which in that context means Holy Communion. So these things are all three markers that help transmit this new life to us. And of course, the most important thing, which is not something that we do, is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration that Lewis is going to get to in just a minute. But let's look a little bit at this word authority. Authority is a bad word for a lot of people that are my age, uh, because we were um, at least I was a little kid in the 60s, but I still remember all those bumper stickers, question authority. Um, you know, it seems kind of cool uh, to not believe in authority. And our culture is still full of that today. Um, you're not the boss of me is sort of the attitude of our culture in so many different ways. But Lewis does a great job of unpacking why authority is important. He says, do not be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. And then he comes up with a bunch of analogies. I believe there is such a place as New York. I have not seen it myself. In fact, Lewis never made it to America. I cannot prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on the basis of authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who had seen them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority 
about other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing at all in his life. So a caution. Do not think I'm setting up baptism and belief in the Holy Communion as the things that will do instead of your own attempts to copy Christ. Your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean it will stay there if you do nothing about it. You can lose it by neglect or you can drive it away by committing suicide. You have to feed it and look after it. But always remember you are not making it. You are only keeping up a life you got from someone else. In the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. But even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam. He is only nourishing or protecting a life he could never have acquired by his own efforts. And that has practical consequences. And I want to just pause and say here, don't... Um, start getting worried about eternal security and doctrines like that here. What Lewis is talking about is that if you are um, consciously choosing to reject faith in Jesus Christ, that that is part of the free will that you have that leads you into that unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by rejecting his work in your life. And of course, most theologians will say that does that means you weren't thoroughly converted or converted in the first place. But remember, Lewis is trying to stay um, way up at the 10,000-foot view right now. So don't get uh, worried about some of those doctrines at this point. So he then says, the Christ life and repentance and repair, and goes back to that analogy of our natural body. As long as the natural life is in your body, it will do a lot toward repairing that body. And this is one of the miracles about creation. Cut it, and up to a point it will heal, as a dead body would not. A live body is not one that never gets hurt, but one that can, to some extent, repair itself. In the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and to begin again after each stumble, because the Christ life is inside him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repeat in some degree the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. What Lewis is saying here about the Christ life is what we often refer to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that works within us. And we're going to come back at the end to a scripture verse about that. Lewis also wants to make very clear this next point, which is so important. Uh, many people in the church tend to fall into the error of works righteousness. We tend to want to be like the elder brother and the prodigal son parable, where we think that we earn our way to God by doing enough good things and that God owes us something because of how good we've been or the things that we've done. So Lewis wants to disabuse us of that notion uh, by talking about Christianity, the Christ life, is not just trying to be good. He says that is why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. These other people hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. And let me make it quite clear that when Christians say the Christ life is in them, they do not mean something, some, simply something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ or of Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them, that the whole mass of true Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts, that we are his fingers, his muscles, 
the cells of his body. And of course, this is exactly what St. Paul talks about in Corinthians, that we are all members of one body and we are all different parts who have different gifts and all of them are needed. And perhaps that explains one or two things. It explains why this new life is not spread only by purely mental acts like belief, but by bodily acts like baptism and holy communion. It's not merely the spreading of an idea, it's more like an evolution, a biological or super biological fact. And I wanna just pause for a moment to say, uh, in the Anglican tradition, and really I think in the Christian tradition in general, the understanding of a sacrament, uh, the definition that you learned in catechism, if you went through that as a child like I did, is that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And I think that is unbelievably helpful. It is an outward and visible sign. That is what Lewis is saying here. It's a physical thing. There's water in baptism. There's bread and wine in communion. There's touch in both of those. Um, there is physicality, corporeality in both of those, but those are an outward sign. They are not the reality. The reality in those sacraments is an inward and spiritual grace that is happening through the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of those things. And that is the beauty of what God has done in these sacraments to leave us these, these signs of his presence with us that have a physical and a spiritual dimension, just like this new life that uh, Lewis is talking about. And then he goes into this little section on God and materiality. He says, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. Probably not something most of us think about trying to do, but we do that sometimes. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. And those of us, St. Philip's just heard a great sermon tonight about Lent being like a journey into the wilderness and how one of the things in our modern culture is that we have come to take food so for granted. Most of us never go hungry. We just eat when we feel like it as a matter of convenience. And we don't realize that for most of human history, hunger was a real thing and that a lot of people's energy went into finding food and keeping it so that they could sustain their lives. God made us that way. He made us for dependence. That is why the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. It's why that prayer of Jesus echoes way back in the time of Moses wandering in the desert with the Israelites when they're dependent on God and their food runs out and God gives them manna from the sky to feed them, to bless them for their dependence on him. Remember what Moses tells them, that they cannot hoard the manna, that if they take more than they need for one day, it will rot and become full of maggots. And that is, again, God wanting us to be daily dependent on him. And that's one of the things that's so sad in our affluent culture that we have forgotten that. Lewis is also coming out here against a heresy called Gnosticism um, that we think is an ancient thing but also exists in our culture today. It's the idea that the spirit world is a completely separate world and that if you are truly spiritual, you only think about that spiritual world and that your body is just an impediment, that uh, the world around us is just an impediment. But Lewis is trying to reclaim the biblical and robust theology of matter and materiality. So his next point, Christ alone. Here is another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life 
should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been un, and, and have been able to believe in him. What Lewis is trying to get at here is that thing that troubles people who are new to the faith and even some of us who have been in the faith about what is the fate of those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the fate of those people? And Christians have had different answers to that question. Um, I personally think the best answer to that question is that we know that God is perfectly just and that God is perfectly merciful uh, and that God will do what is right with respect to those people, but that it is incumbent upon us as Christians to share with urgency the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Lewis says here is the truth is that God has not told us what his arrangements about these other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. That's the main point. No man can be saved except through Christ. Lewis then says, we do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. I might want to argue with that a little bit, uh, depending on uh, how you interpret what he says there. But I think what he's saying is that we need to trust God. And the next part that he says, um, I think, helps fill that in. In the meantime, if you are worried about the people outside, that is, those people who have never heard of Christ, the most unreasonable thing you can do is to remain outside yourself. Christians are Christ's body, the organism through which he works. Every addition to that body enables him to do more. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ who alone can help them. Cutting off a man's fingers would be an odd way of getting him to do more work. And we know from the rest of Lewis's work that Lewis was a big believer in the imperative of missions, the imperative of evangelism. Um, so I wouldn't, again, try to push this summary uh, into a doctrine that I think he's not trying to get across. Um, the next thing he talks about is God's methods. Another possible objection is this, and this is what I call the, the Madison Avenue objection, or the uh, McKenzie, Booz Allen, Hamilton, uh, Big 8 accounting consulting firm uh, objection. Why is God landing in this enemy-occupied territory in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Surely this doesn't make sense, particularly not for modern man where we know how to do everything. Why is he not landing in force, invading it? Is it that he's not strong enough, or perhaps he just didn't take a good class in strategic planning? Well, Christians think he is going to land in force. We do not know when, but we can guess why he is delaying. You will remember that in the uh, early church, there was the very strong expectation that Christ would one day return. And it is in the creeds, we believe that he will come to be our judge uh, we believe in the second coming all through the season of Advent. We read scriptures about that. And Lewis says there is a reason that God is delaying. There is a reason that Christ has not yet returned. And he says he wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited until the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced that he was on the side of the Allies. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what's the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us 
and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will seem either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will then be too late to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Now that's Lewis sounding like Billy Graham right there, that this is the hour of decision. And just as a side note, Lewis uh, met with Billy Graham um, when he was doing a a crusade in Cambridge in England in the 1950s, and they had an amazing time. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall with that. But what Lewis is saying is that we need to choose. We need to choose which side we're on, that you cannot stay on the fence, that you have to decide, uh, and you have to do those things. You have to believe in Christ or not. And one of the things that I love about Lewis is that he so often seems to be doing a prolonged explication of a scripture verse. And this particular chapter reminded me so much of Philippians 2, 5, and 6. And I would encourage you uh, to think about and chew on this verse as you reread this chapter. The great truth and paradox of the Christian life is caught up in this verse written by Paul when Paul was in jail. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is one of those things that, uh, as Lewis says, is very odd and therefore has the smack of reality, the taste of reality, that we are to work out our own salvation. Well, that certainly sounds like works righteousness, but look what he says right after. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is a beautiful example and description of what Lewis is calling the Christ life here. When that new life enters us, that our hearts and our minds are being transformed, just as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, uh, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so you may know what the will of God is, his good, perfect, and acceptable will. So Lewis is um, covering a lot of territory here. A lot of this is going to get unpacked further um, in Christian behavior. Remember, he's not trying to teach doctrine here. He's trying to give an overview of the Christian life uh, and what it means to believe. And so um, hold on to that. And I want to close, as always, with this wonderful passage from the end of this book that uh, each chapter that we read, you see more and more how this is such an appropriate summary for it. So let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's close with a word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the great miracle of this Christ life that you plant in the heart of every believer through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to think that we can earn our way by being good, but that instead we would throw ourselves at the foot of the cross, that we would beg for your mercy as that tax collector did. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that as you plant that new life in us through belief, through baptism, through Holy Communion, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the body of believers, that you would grow us more and more and more in that new life, that we would experience the joy of your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.